Hope your Thanksgiving was good. We had Rebecca's family visiting. We had to do a little bit of uh, last-minute jockeying for position with Rebecca's siblings on who got to have the grandparents to help with the kids for Thanksgiving this year. They made the 22-hour drive up one way to be with us. And, uh, you know, it was going to be, if it was just me taking care of the food while Rebecca's recovering from surgery bedridden, uh, it was probably going to be a uh, one of those Cajun turkeys from Popeyes. You know what I'm talking about? Um, I've always wanted to try one and was thinking it would finally be my year. And nevertheless, uh, the mother-in-law cooked an amazing, amazing spread for us for Thanksgiving. I know I'm making you hungry. Um, the fact of the matter is, it was unlike the Thanksgiving I thought it would be. It ended up being a pull-out-all-the-stops kind of Thanksgiving. You ever had one of these? We're talking about not just one pie, not just two pies, three pies for Thanksgiving. Would you believe me if I told you that uh, we're still not done with all the pies? We finished off the chocolate cream and the cheesecake, and now all that's left is the pecan pie because Rebecca doesn't want it, and I don't have much of a sweet tooth. So uh, we'll see if it ends up making the move with us to Arkansas or not. The fact of the matter is, it was a pull-out-all-the-stops kind of Thanksgiving. There's no length my mother-in-law wouldn't go to to ensure that we were taken care of. You ever had somebody treat you like this? Go above and beyond. And just when you thought that she had gone as far above and beyond as humanly possible, she was down in the basement packing up our extra things for us during nap time. Sacrificed her Thanksgiving Day nap in order to help us prepare for this huge transition that we have coming. Well, this morning in the book of Joshua, we find ourselves in a passage where God pulls out all the stops. We find a cataclysmic battle in Joshua chapter 10, where we find there is no link that God won't go to in order to, on the one hand, bring judgment against his enemies in the Canaanites. On the other hand, to ensure victory for Canaan, to whom he has promised the land. It's a statement that, of course, is about more than just flesh and blood. We're going to find um, all kinds of cosmic descriptors in this passage that we're reading this morning. The famous daylight savings time passage in the book of Joshua, right? Where God causes the sun to stand still. It's in this passage where we find the turning point in the book of Joshua thus far. We've had battle after battle after battle. And the book tonally takes a shift after this. We find a number of lists Um, Things seem to settle in as the people have, well, God has given them the victory. Most of the work has been done. Nevertheless, it hasn't been totally smooth sailing, has it? There's been a number of obstacles that have come up thus far in the book of Joshua. First and foremost, the question of obedience was on the table as they were knocking on the doorstep to Canaan. As they came into the promised land, they found themselves, of course, faced with the initial decision that they had 40 years prior. Even though we're going to be outnumbered and metaphorically outgunned, can we go ahead and follow the commands that God has given us in order to take up arms against the people who seem stronger than us, bigger than us, and more capable than us? Will faith eventually be the victory? Or will they turn back in fear as their ancestors had done? They, of course, face this as their first obstacle from there as we find that uh, the people seem to be determined to set out on a different 
uh, with a different tone into the land of Canaan, we find that the, the Jordan River becomes the first, the second major obstacle that they come upon. The Jordan River, as they find themselves finally being asked to take the leap of faith, to step out into the river in faith that God would part the river. And then, of course, they part on dry land. From there, they come to Jericho against these fortified walls that they had no way of taking down through their own power. And God there demonstrated that He would give them the victory if they were obedient, even when it didn't make sense on the battle plan. Last week, we looked at the battle of Ai in Joshua's chapter 7 and 8. Joshua chapter 7, they took matters into their own hands. They didn't first consult with God. They then went charging against Ai, having left most of their army behind, thinking, well, this one won't be as hard as Jericho. It won't be nearly as difficult. And they found that, of course, they had another thing coming. They needed to consult God and their plans. They needed to address their own sinfulness before they moved forward. Otherwise, we begin to put more stock in our own abilities. Achan's sin was dealt with uh, quite brutally. We, of course, talked about that from a New Testament context as well. Then God gives them the victory after they had repented, after the sin had been dealt with. Uh, it's a, a marvelous kind of trick play that God ran in Joshua chapter 8 that we didn't read in every last verse Last Sunday, of course, we're skipping over Joshua chapter 9, not to say that you should skip over Joshua chapter 9. Hopefully, you're reading through the book at home in addition to our time together in the sermon. It's there that they find another obstacle as they are deceived by the Gibeonites. Gibeonites come to them pretending to be foreigners from a faraway land, having been impressed by the stories of God and all the good things He had done and giving them triumph over Egypt and now over the Canaanites. And, well, they didn't want to be conquered. They wanted to participate, only to discover that it was all a ruse, thwarting that commandment that God had given them to totally wipe out every last inhabitant of Canaan. All of this having taken place at this point, we come to Joshua chapter 10, where we find a climactic battle bookending this particular half of the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. God's word says this, As soon as Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. He feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So, Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, and Japhia, king of Lachish, to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come to me and help me. Let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went, and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. 
And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us. For all of the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. Let's pause there for a moment in our reading of Joshua chapter 10. We find that this battle is already going quite differently than the others, isn't it? This time, it's not just a river that stands in their way. It's not just one city, one king, one army. This is a coalition of five powerful kings of five well-established city-states making a coalition to come up against the people of God. Did you notice the reasoning there for why they have come up against the people of Israel? Because they were afraid. You see, fear can cause people to do drastic and even foolish things, can't it? The question that has been posed all the way through Joshua from the very first words until now and beyond is the age-old question of faith and fear. Which will win out? And of course, in this battle, we find that it is the faithful who take the victory through, well, no fault of their own. This time around, God makes quite the statement, doesn't he? You see, in the country of Canaan, at this particular point, the government that exists there isn't some kind of unified monarchy where there's one great king who makes all the rules and calls all the shots. We have independent city-states. Each of these fortified city-states with their great walls like we saw in Jerusalem and Ai, well, these particular city-states have their own government, their own king. They have nothing to do with each other except when it comes to war. When the Egyptians come in, well, hey, now it's time to team up against these invaders. And this, of course, proves to be the case here. There's a couple of interesting details regarding this king of Jerusalem, isn't it? We, of course, know what's going to become of Jerusalem. It becomes the city of the great king. You see, this is where the temple of God will be. This is where the house of David will come to dwell. This, of course, becomes the dwelling place where Jesus, of course, ministers and even is crucified. This becomes the central place in all of the promised land for generations and generations to come. And in order for it to become the city of David, it first has to be wrenched from the hands of this pagan, wicked king. Even his name is a clue to just exactly what God is doing here in this chapter. If you take a look here at the name that we're reading, it's not just gobbledygook, and I just love preaching from the Old Testament and trying to make sense of these names. Thankfully, I didn't say what I said in one of my very first sermons at age 14 from the book of uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, I got it to a long list of names and said the word hash banana from the pulpit. Okay, that's not what this is. It's not one of these names that's unpronounceable. It's a name that means something. Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, literally means it is the Lord and king, the Lord king. Adonai is an Old Testament name for God, right? It is an Old Testament name that means Lord. And then Zedek is king. The Lord King. The point here is that he's really not much of a Lord at all, is he? He might command an army. He might command an alliance. But look at the power he really has in comparison to the power of God. You see, God is making quite the statement here in Joshua chapter 10. This isn't just a war story for us to enjoy the action and excitement of the Old Testament. This is a story that should cause us 
to come in awe before the power of the Lord God himself. See, the fact of the matter is they are cowering in fear, and it's one last desperate attempt. On the one hand, to get revenge against, well, one of the city-states that thought they could outsmart the other city-states as well as Israel. It puts Israel's ability to keep their promises and make alliances to the test, as they have just promised, though they were duped into doing so, to protect Gibeon. But the fact of the matter is God isn't one to be tested, is he? No, not at all. In fact, God's defeat of the Canaanite alliance of these northern city-states here in Joshua chapter 10 now takes on cosmic consequences. Listen to this, continuing reading in verse 8 of Joshua chapter 10. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth-Horon, and struck them as far as Ezekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth-Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekah, and they died. There were more men who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. You see, the point is loud and clear, isn't it? It's God who's giving them the victory here, despite the fact that they had marched all night in order to go and take, um, in order to protect the Gibeonites and take battle against this northern Canaanite coalition. It's God ultimately who's giving them the victory, isn't He? See, it's fitting, isn't it, that we read about God sending down hailstones to defeat the Canaanite armies just a couple of days after our first snow of the season, isn't it? Would you call that our first snow of the season? Who thinks it doesn't count? Anybody want to say that's not the first snow? Just Fran. Just Fran, of course. I knew Fran was going to raise her hand. I knew it. Well, we can still say that it was the first. The fact that some of it is still out here, I can see it through the window, means there was at least some snow. It's fitting for the story. Just go with me. Just go with me, right? You see... It's fitting that we're reading about these hailstones because, well, for some of us, as winter comes, it becomes quite dreaded. It's a terrifying thing. We're so tired of uh, how oppressive the snow can be from time to time. I know what you're thinking. Don't complain. You're moving to Arkansas. Okay, I won't. I won't. But the fact of the matter is, uh, for some, it's a joy. Here in this particular passage, the hail that comes from heaven is not just uh, the first snow of the season. This is God waging war in cataclysmic, cosmic fashion against Canaan. You see, he's saying it's not just another war like you've seen before. This time, it's serious. You see, the words that we've just read here in Joshua chapter 10 um, about God's promise that he gives to the people. Uh, Do not fear them, verse 8, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you, should sound familiar to Joshua and his people. After all, this is exactly the promise that God had given them before they ever 
set foot in the promised land. It was in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 24 that Moses tells the people this. He will give their kings into your hand, and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. See, the fact of the matter is God has promised to give them the victory, and God in the book of Joshua is showing that He is the God who keeps His promises. The question then is, will God's people then keep their promises in return? We continue reading, of course, it sounds like the battle might be over here uh, at this particular point in the story, and yet there's still so much more to come in this great cosmic warfare that's happening in Joshua chapter 10. First, they march all night. Then the hail comes from heaven. And now things escalate even further in verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of all Israel, Son, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of man. For the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. See, the point is loud and clear at this point in the story, isn't it? If we hadn't caught it up until now, the narrator of the book of Joshua is making the point as clearly as possible. On this day, the Lord fought for Israel. You see, we find language unlike anything that we're finding anywhere else in the book of Joshua. It stands out as exaggerated. It stands out as odd. Now, there's a lot that we could do with this in terms of how we understand this passage. I feel no need to jump through any interpretive loops or hoops in order to make sense of what's happening here. We don't, however, still have a copy of the book of Jashar that's mentioned. We just have to take Joshua's word for it, don't we? that there was never a day like it before or since. There's something happening here where God is making his point loud and clear to the people of Canaan, loud and clear for all who come later to hear of this story, that when God sets his mind to do something, no one can stand in his way. You see, it was not dependent on Israel's ability to be sword fighters, their ability as warriors, or how tired they might be after having marched all night, and now battling for an extra long day. The point is, even if they're worn out, even if they're outnumbered, it's God who's going to keep His promises. Now, there are, of course, um, scientists smarter than I who have looked back and have tried to do the math on the sun and the moon and the day-night cycle throughout uh, human history and have looked at this particular point and said, this matches up with what we understand about the world. I can't begin to explain it other than to say that there are scientists for whom this passage is very crucial to their understanding of Scripture as the authoritative Word of God. What I can see clearly here, however, is this, that the people of Israel didn't need daylight 
for an extra long period of time in order to be victorious. That wasn't essential here. God did not have to do what Joshua said there in verses uh, 12 and 13 in order for them to be victorious. After all, even after having marched all night, God sent down hail to destroy the Canaanite kings earlier in the passage. Now, that wasn't essential. It's clear in this particular passage that, that um, this is, after all, in the line of the pattern that God has been establishing all throughout um, the story of Scripture up until this point, that it is He, and only He, who can command the forces of the cosmos. You see, it's God who created the heavens and the earth, and He can stop them on a dime with a word. God commands all of heaven and earth. We find it clear that God can call the cosmos into His judgment back in Genesis 6 through 8 in the flood. The flood, of course, that becomes judgment to the world, but then salvation for Noah and his family. We find that God can call the cosmos down in judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18 and 19. God can command every aspect of Egyptian mythology and society, turning water to blood, and of course, even hail once again back in the story of Exodus as he commands all of the cosmos in order to free his people from slavery in Exodus, Exodus 7 through 12. Once again, in that particular passage, God establishes himself against a pretender to the throne, the Pharaoh who thinks he runs the world. And God says, look at this, look at this. You see, a traditional view is that the only way they could be victorious is if they just had more daylight to see their enemies. It doesn't really make sense if we think about it too hard, does it? What the passage is making quite clear, however, is that this day is unlike any other and that God is making a statement. There in verse 14, the Lord fought for Israel. Now that the battle is won, there's one more important detail for us to catch in the aftermath. As God is establishing His authority over Canaan, as Israel is learning that after all, God has kept His promises. He's not dependent on our ability as warriors in order for us to subdue the land. We now, we now find, of course, God demonstrating His authority over every last Canaanite king who might come up before Him. In a way, even, that points us to Jesus. Let's take a look. Continuing in verse 16, These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makedah. See, quite brave of these fearful kings, isn't it, to let their armies die in battle and then go hide in a cave? Of course, that's not the way that God operates, is it? Listen to this, continuing in verse 17, It was told to Joshua, The five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makedah. And Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities. For the Lord your God, listen to this refrain, it comes up again. The Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out. And when the, remin when the remnant had remained of them, had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makedah. 
Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon. And when they had brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with them, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on the neck on their necks. Then Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. But the time of the going down of the sun Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves and set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remained this very day. For at Machadah, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, and he did to the king of Machadah just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Violent, I know, but can you hear the messianic overtones in this passage that we've just read? You see, it's in Psalm 110 that we find this great messianic prophecy that then is echoed throughout all of the synoptic gospels by Jesus himself. The Lord said to, uh, said to my Lord, well, let me look up the particular passage. I thought I had it memorized. And it's when you start preaching that you realize that you don't have it as memorized as well as you thought you did. It's Psalm 110 and verse 1. And Jesus repeats it in Matthew chapter 22, Mark chapter 12, and Luke chapter 20. Psalm 110 and verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You see, the way Jesus uses this passage is to say, even David answered to a higher authority. The words Lord in our English are actually different words in the Old Testament and in the New. This is to say that the Lord, right, that is Yahweh, said to my Lord, the King, that is David realizes that his authority comes from above. Only God gives the king of Israel authority. Isn't that relevant to what we've just read here in Joshua? It's God that, put, that puts kings in power. God who commands all of the cosmos. See, we think that we're in control of things. We think we're in charge, and yet God makes the point quite clear here in Joshua chapter 10 that there is no power that can stand before his throne. Jesus uses this particular passage knowing full well the implications for who he really is, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And God above gives him power because, well, he doesn't hide in a cave. You see, Jesus sticks his neck out for us, doesn't he? See, we read a passage like this in Joshua and we say, it's too violent. Uh, let, let's leave the Old Testament in the cave over there in the Old Testament. Let's leave that buried in the tomb at Machadah. But you see, it's in order 
to understand who Jesus really is that we look at passage like, passages like this, where we find Jesus' kingship displayed in his willingness to risk everything for us. You see, God demonstrates that Jesus has all authority on heaven and on earth. As Jesus, like we've read here in Joshua chapter 10, commands the cosmos, doesn't he? Jesus tells the wind and the waves, peace, be still. And they obey without argumentation. This is the story that I try to tell my kids, as whenever I tell them to do something, there's always some kind of argument, right? Uh, They learn, like the Gibeonites, how to deceitfully twist my arm into getting what they want. I'll say, girls, it's time for bed. And they'll say, five more minutes. And I say, did you know that when Jesus told the wind and the waves to be still, they did it without argument? I tell my kids, and I mean this, this is my prayer on almost a daily basis. Lord, make me like the wind and the waves where I obey without hesitation. You see, when Jesus commands the wind and the waves, they obey. When Jesus commands his disciples, they argue. They argue. What about us? However, you see, there's creational implications here in Joshua chapter 10 that God commands all of heaven and earth, not just for the establishment of man, but to judge man. And he has every right to do so. You see, we find here that God is not just interested in a turf war, putting another king in power who eventually is going to lose his way. See, God is making the point here that it is he who truly is the king of the promised land. See, the fact of the matter is, as we have looked at this quite violent, cataclysmic story here in Joshua chapter 10, God defeated the enemies of Canaan with the sun. Well, and also hail. It's quite the show of power. But today we celebrate a different kind of victory in the New Testament church, don't we? Not the S-U-N, but the S-O-N, right? As God has given us victory through Jesus Christ who didn't call us to take up swords against Canaanite kings, but to lay lay down our swords and to follow Jesus in selfless sacrifice. The fact of the matter is, as we read a story like this, and we see the, the feet of the leaders of Israel on the necks of the Canaanite kings, if that makes you uncomfortable, let's look at it in a different way. To say that that's the kind of victory that God has demonstrated over sin, over the forces of darkness. Jesus has subjugated death once and for all. We have victory from the tomb in Jesus Christ. You see, he has made his point loud and clear with these grand miracles like we've just read about here in Joshua so that now we accept them in faith to know this is the God we serve, the God who commands the cosmos and the God who enacts divine judgment on his enemies. See, we look at the victory we have in Jesus through the cross. We also have to recognize the fact that those who had had the opportunity to repent and did not do so, these Canaanite kings, Adoni Zedek and his posse, what we learn, of course, is that God is going to make things right. God is going to make things right. And even though Israel looks outnumbered, over and over and over again, he tells them, do not fear, for I have given all of this into your hands. The question I have this morning as we read from the Old Testament and think about its implications for us today is what role does fear 
have in your life? Can we look at a story like this and say, you know what? God has given us victory. I don't have to be enslaved to sin. I don't have to be afraid for my fate. I don't have to wonder what will happen tomorrow because I know this is the God who has given us abundantly. He's pulled out all the stops. He's gone above and beyond to show us once and for all that we can have eternal life in Him. You're here this morning and your view of God is the God who judges. If you're like the Canaanites who look at the power of God and say, we've got to do something desperate, we can respond to God in a healthier way. The way that we learn in Jesus to come to Him for our salvation, to confess Him as Lord, repent of our sin, and to be baptized in the water that symbolizes the blood of Christ. If you need to respond to the Lord, to come to obey Him with faith and with love, or if you need to respond in any other way this morning, why don't you do so now as we stand and sing?